I want coffee. Well, I'm gonna have to get a beat. It's so stupid. Hi. Okay. This is the Grand Fresh coming live to you from Brussels. Woo, woo, woo. Welcome, guys. What's up? Hey. Hey, Jaden. Hey. Uh, it's Jay, baby. <laughs> I thought you were hesitating because you forgot my name. <laughs> hey, Maylot. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? You know, I'm fine. It's been a little bit warmer out lately so Woo-hoo. i've been like getting my little thoughty on i'm wearing an erica badu shirt right now that my mom made me so i love that why did your mom make you an erica badu shirt i mean wow it's amazing but like why you know what i had a friend that like is friends with my mom and she said my mom contacted her in secret and said hey what should i get Jaden for christmas and she was like oh yeah make them shirts and my mom was like yeah totally <laughs> And she was like, but wait, what music does Jaden listen to? And she said, first and foremost, Kesha. <laughs> Why? Why Kesha? Because I will wilden out to Kesha every opportunity I got. Okay, okay. I get that. S- secondly, she said, Erica Badu. And then my mom also made me a Simone de Beauvoir quoted shirt. <laughs> so I got, you know, I flew in back to the U.S. to see her. And I um, saw this big box and I was like no she didn't what did you get me and I look through open it up and I get three Kesha Erica Badu and Simone de Beauvoir shirts so it's been Kesha nice. Erica Badu and Simone de Beauvoir okay okay my cool. sun sign my moon sign and my rising sign mm-hmm. I see that which one's your sun sign which one's your moon, uh, moon sign and which one's your rising sign though okay who's who's okay who do you appear? Because your rising sun sign is how you appear to people, the first impression you make. So which one would you be? Wait, the sun or the... I thought the rising... Wait, can you just like <laughs> yeah, explain yeah. that really fast? I'll give a quick recap. So your rising sign is how you come across to people. So the first impression you make, uh, how people perceive you. Your moon sign is your internal instincts, your emotions, your inner world. You're 40 and unconscious. Yeah, yeah. Of. And your uh, sun sign is the total, t- the total package. Like, you know, you're everything together, but you're also aspiring to become more and more like your sun sign as well. So, like, as you grow, you're becoming more... So your sun is, an I- is the ideal. Yeah. No, not an ideal. It's you, but it's... You becoming you, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, so I was trying to think. I also heard that we learn our signs because we're, like, born with these predispositions. Like, okay, you're a Leo, so you're, like, a little bit hard-headed or something mm-hmm. and very, like, confident what she is. And I come across as confident, but am I? You are. <laughs> you are. I mean, you are. That is the amazing quality about you. You are very confident. And, um, like, I thought that... Also, astrology is kind of like, oh, I know that, for instance, I'm a Libra and I do these things in a certain way. You know, I am indecisive. And now that I have the knowledge of that, I have to fight against that to, like, undo my essence. True. So true, I don't true. know if I have to fight against it or go with it. Mm-hmm. What are you doing? 
But no, but in this case, we're talking about Erica Badu, Simone de Beauvoir, <laughs> and uh, who was the other one? Kesha. Kesha. So My rising is Kesha. Yeah, you come across <laughs> as Kesha. Your moon, I would say, is Erica. Okay. Your inner world, no? Yeah. Or Simone? I don't know. Yeah, okay, wait. Simone, the thing is, I don't want to like project and aspire to be de Beauvoir particularly because she was a little bit wild. But she like, was wild, yeah. In a very elitist way. Okay, you know what? I'm gonna, I, you know, Moon is Erica because how could you not? She has a song called Orange Moon. Mm. So I will mm. have to say that uh, by default. And then Beauvoir would be mine. <laughs> I'm not, wow. My son. Simone Beauvoir is your sun sign. Got it. Okay, cool. Moving on. How has your week been? Um, I will start with you first. How's your week been? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> My week has been good. I've been enjoying the sun. The sun is out in Brussels and I have never been so happy. Wow. You know, when you are living in a country where it's just mostly shitty weather all the time. Every day. raining every day. You really appreciate just like rays of sunshine on your face. So everyone in Brussels and in Leuven and Flanders, just like whenever there's like a little bit of sunshine, they're just like out and about on their little um, terraces, no shirts, no nothing. Not even like joking. You can see, find like a puddle that just kind of built up in any quarter and there'll be 50 people like around it. Like, I love this beach weather. It feels so nice. But also like all the beautiful people come out like the entire year. I'm like, whoa, no, no beauty in the streets whatsoever. (laughs) And then now it's like, wow, Brussels people looking fun, you know? It's also funny because I completely conceive of... Like, yeah, like the the Belgian archetype of kind of being a bit like, oh, yeah, I'm just like stuck to myself like, in my realm and whatnot. Because you're always confined indoors when it's mm-hmm. cold. And then when the weather's good, I'm like, wait, you guys have always been nice, but you guys are just not doing that outside because there's no reason to be outside otherwise. Mm-hmm. So seeing everybody come out is, you know... Sexually Great. and otherwise, seeing everybody come out is Yay. an amazing thing. <laughs> Coming out is always good. But no, and then at work, it's funny because, like, you get – there's an entirely different atmosphere when the sun's out. People are more relaxed, not as stressed. People are more friendly, mm. so that's nice. So, yeah, I've had a good week. You look like it. Thank you. If you I know this is a podcast, but if you guys see Maylel right now, she looks so cute. Oh, my God. Jason, <laughs> I'm going to blush, but technically I can't blush, so whatever. Um, okay, yeah, well. <laughs> so, but yeah, my melanin is super grateful for the sun. Yeah, this sun has been treating us too damn good as of late. But it must be especially hard for you in Brussels, right, not seeing sun, sun seeing that you're from um, Arizona and it's super sunny there all the time. Yeah, Phoenix is the most sunny mega met- uh, met- metropolitan city. <laughs> Wait, that was that was said very wrong. It's like the, as a major city, it's uh-huh. the most sunny city like in the world because it has over 4,000 hours of sunlight, whereas Brussels gets a little bit over 1,200. Oh, my God. So it is a massive dip. And, yeah, for a while I lived in Sedona, Arizona. Have you heard of this city no what is that sedona sedona sounds cool though founded by a woman white woman named sedona yeah no Mm, yeah (laughs) seriously yeah and you lived there yeah so i lived there for a little bit and um 
it's a wild, wild place that is not like anywhere in Europe where everybody that goes there either is a tarot card reader or a Reiki master. And like right what, now... What's a ri- Reiki master? Is oh. it Japanese? Japanese? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, well, I wouldn't call it Japanese per se or at all. But <laughs> I mean... <laughs> but I mean, I'm sure there's a relation that I'm probably just not recognizing. Uh-huh. But I don't know where Reiki came from. It came from like the New Age, you know, movement that started in the UK that spread in the US. These New Age, uh, you know, like middle upper class, mostly white people that are really big into uh, kind of mixing all religions and whatnot, um, which I like. But it's also you know the, the girls that you see with dread the people that you see with dreadlocks and then but, these people wearing but what is hope. it like is it a movement is it a religion is it new a new age spirituality is a mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. is a kind of unitary i would mm-hmm. say not religion because they don't stick to any organization mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it is a type of very very I would say quite organized spirituality because anywhere you go in the UK you'll find the same exact people having the same philosophy in Arizona or, you know, other places in the Anglosphere specifically. So it's quite, yeah, weird. But anyway, Reiki is basically um, the manipulation of energies from one person onto the other Mm -hmm. where they can use forms of healing. So, for instance, you would, like, be placed on an amethyst-like bed. Uh, One of my friend's moms had, like, this amethyst bed, and it was, like, FDA-approved as an actual medical healing uh, tool. And she would just, uh, you know, go over people in this very intimate space and then, like, just realign their energies. So Reiki is kind of like the realigning and working of the energies and stuff. So it's very um, intimate. And you usually call upon some type of patron. So usually Archangel Michael is, like, a very uh, predominant person for evoking, for, like, doing things like Reiki and whatnot. So it's a bit of Christianity. It's a bit of uh, Buddhism. Booty, hey, you know, I like some Buddhism. (laughs) Buddhism, yes. Sorry, no offense. Uh, It's a bit of everything. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's pretty wild there. I mean... Buddhism. Yeah, Buddhism. What's up? (laughs) So it's it's pretty wild there. Buddhism. (laughs) I love it. Okay. Um, Yeah, so basically that's it, but... I don't really have much else to say about the situation. Right now, there's a cult going down in Sedona where this guy is, like, accruing a massive amount of, like, followers and stuff. I don't know his name. I'll have to look into it later. But he's kind of, like, this techno... He's kind of, like, being this, like, white savior. Mm -hmm. And he's, like, getting everybody to... I don't know, get into this weird cult following based on, like, a technological internet culture. It's very weird. He's based in Sedona. It is some crazy shit. A technological... Wow. Internet culture. Well, he's using the internet as a means to, like, team and lure people into, you know, like, either coming to Sedona or, like, being part of that. So he gets massive amounts of patrons and stuff through online sources that he sources through videos and stuff. So it's a really interesting way to see this kind of diaspora of a cult that Mm -hmm. is still located in these, you know, in the vortex city of Sedona. Why vortex? What's, What's the word vortex? Why? Why is it used here? Oh, vortex is because uh, Sedona has vortexes. Oh, I what's feel like a vortex? A vortex is a energetic hotspot, a spring of oh, yeah, yeah, energy yeah, yeah. that comes out of the earth. Yeah. So, like, what they ended up doing in Sedona is uh, Sedona is at the same exact latitude as Jerusalem, so it's on the same <gasps> parallel line. Oh my god! So it's like super associated with being a hotspot of uh, 
of energy coming into the earth. So what they say is that all knowledge that comes in also, this is like a 90% white city. So take this type of thing with a grain of salt, but apparently all knowledge that comes into the earth first comes to the vortexes in Sedona and then it disperses forward out. So new knowledge that enters the world starts in Sedona, spreads out. Wow. Super US centric and white centric, but I mean, so yeah, so the vortexes are spring wells of energy. So people go there and like, whoa. I didn't know. I'm going to have to read on whatever it is that you just told me. You know what? Me too. Because <laughs> I'm just like all kinds of confused. Vortexes, Reiki, Sedona. These are words that I've never heard before. <laughs> yeah. And maybe it has to do with my limited. Buddhism is also a word I've yet heard. <laughs> limited vocabulary. But wow, it's fascinating. Mm. Reminds me of how like when I was in Santa Fe. It was just so, like, Americans love crystals and fetishes. Wild. And, like, everything. I don't know. Does it have to do with the Native American legacy, you think? Well, yeah. That's a massive thing. I mean, you go to... That's a massive thing. I mean, especially in the West, because this kind of new age exists particularly where there's more sparse populations and more nature. Mm -hmm. So, first the biggest Native American reservation in the U.S., which is the whole size of the Benelux, bigger than the Benelux, is Navajo Nation, which is conveniently located very close to Sedona. And before um, before Sedona became, you know, colonized, it was a Native American, you know, have, like place where they live for thousands of years. So it's always been a Native place. So I would say that there's no way that you can't have this totality of colonizing a space without also kind of appropriating and stealing mm. um, what was what is and has been there. So I think it's probably based on that. But I'm not sure. I don't know about no a- New Age. No <laughs> Age. You just had an entire speech <laughs> on like Sedona and Vortex. And then you were like, disclaimer, I don't know anything about this. <laughs> you know what? Anyone from Sedona, I'm sorry if I butchered that. You probably deserve better, but... Yeah, it's, it's how I think it goes. everyone from Sedona deserves better. Just no, in general. Again, no offense, no <laughs> offense. Anyway, so what else have you been up to? Did you like read anything or like see anything that's worthwhile talking about? Well, other than what's right in front of me. Oh my god, that was something. That was a sight that I damn didn't need to see. That was looking thank too good. Thank you, thank um, you. But I've already complimented you this show, so... Yeah, you're complimenting me a lot. It's because the sun's out, and there's something... Yeah. It's so there's hot something about here. the sun that makes you want to give compliments out to people. It's true. The sun does that to you. Mm. I believe that, because I feel that right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I have read uh, this book on the post-colony. It's a pretty seminal piece of work by um, Akili Membe. Oh, Achille Membe? There we go. Yeah. Um, cool. It was pretty cool. You know, I read the first introduction, um, trying to talk about like the construction of Africa and whatnot. Wait, why did you, first of all, so how did you come across this book? Why, why did you decide to read it? Uh, well, the first and foremost thing is that I'm trying to always, you know, I've been, I love friends, my patrons, my patron saint, friends, Fanon and whatnot. And I'm always reading about colonialism. So First name basis, really? I love France. <laughs> I thought you meant the country. I was like, what? <laughs> um, but yeah, so I've been just trying to get onto 
post-colonialism, how can I work in that? Also mm. of being a, um, you know, pretty white passing person, I need to also think, you know, if I'm going to speak in, uh, about blackness and whatnot, how am I going to not create a subaltern? How am I not going to talk for people that I can't speak for? And what am I even speaking about? So, of course, I'm always trying to keep myself set up on that. Um, I have, like, a reading group with some people that's also based on post-colonialism. Wait, why am I not in that reading group? What? It's on Fridays. What? 11 to 1. Oh, your class? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, never mind. Anyway, funny story about this book, because I don't want to get into, you know, somebody on a, an analysis can do it better justice than I can right now. But interesting thing about this book, at my school, Caillou Leuven, of course. Shout out to Caillou Leuven. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah. Shout out to it. Whatever. I. This is an obvious philosophical post book <laughs> and i studied philosophy i went to the uh, philosophy department to the library they didn't have it where's I had, your hat though where's my hat <laughs> what do you mean my hat it's <laughs> just stupid stereotype that philosophy students wear hats <laughs> <laughs> like a smart hat Okay, well, I don't know who told you that stereotype, but they're not your friend. Okay. Because that was... <laughs> but, like, you know how some writers or, like, philosophers <gasps> wear, like, smart hats? You need a hat, oh, Jaden. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but not, like, a pimp hat. Just, like, <laughs> with a feather or whatever, because you would buy such a hat. Such a hat has been bought. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, Sorry to interrupt you. Anyway, to bring it... To bring into that piece, um, I had to end up going to, for a, you know, these people are just as much as any philosophical text I've ever read. I mean, to the same legitimacy, validation of using certain sources on phenomenology and things like this, whatever. Um, Why did I have to go to the anthropology department Mm. to pick up a book by a black philosopher? Once again, Franz Fanon as well is not in our department. He's also in sociology. So it seems as if anytime black people speak about blackness, which is also an ideology, why is it also seen, you know, it's lived as well, but it's also an ideology. Why is it only seen as an anthropological claim? Mm. And what kind of denouncing is yes. that giving? What? Well, obviously, because philosophy is about thinking and black people can't think. Mm. So therefore, there's no black philosophers. Duh. <laughs> I'm so stupid. I'm so stupid. I'm so stupid. Really. <laughs> no, that's fucked up that you had to go to the anthropology library to find a black seminal work mm. on blackness. Do you, as a writer, do you feel like you... As a writer? <laughs> I'm not a writer. I just sometimes write, but okay. As a writer, do you sometimes feel devalidated or delegitimized through your blackness in certain articles that you write? But I know you write on blackness as a majority. Mm-hmm. But when you do not, do you think that that would bother the scope or the orientation of your writing? That's actually a really interesting question. I had a conversation with someone yesterday, coincidentally. We talked about how, and this is you know, a different situation, but in a similar vein, how, um, like, politicians of color are always, like, asked to talk about diversity issues Mm. and, like, Islam or whatever, and never about, like, economy or, like, um, you know, education. They're always, like, pigeonholed in this really narrow-minded area. 
And it is tiring because I would like to talk about just random things that ha have nothing to do with like black culture or like race per se. Um, but you're always presented as someone that can only talk about that. Mm. So, and it's very limiting and it's very tiring. And it's um, labeling you um, in a way as just being one thing and we can only consume you as this one thing and we don't want to know about your opinion on other subjects because we have white people for that. Yeah. Yeah. And even more so if you are talking about something like economy, mm -hmm. you know, they the reason you might not be asked to like write on economy, even though I don't know how good you are in economics, <laughs> but <laughs> I suck. But... I I will just disregard that. Mm -hmm. Um I would think that, you know, these people would be like, oh well we don't need like a a certain type of deconstructive or black orientation towards economy. We just want to get to the, like the straight towards it. You know, mm. it's kind of seen that there's, I would assume that there's kind of like this additive that's assumed yeah. for certain things that are talked about. So they want to essentialize it down to like one aspect because I don't need the additive of like a black perspective on economy or something like that. Yeah. And you see that with not only black perspective, but the female perspective too. Mm. Like how a lot of laws that are being voted here in Belgium don't take into account uh, the female perspective in that they don't look at how a law might affect women in different ways. Mm. You know, they just don't know because there's no women, women, um, you know, female perspective that's been taken into account. And if you don't have black female politicians or black uh, female intellectuals, then the black female perspective is not taken into account. Like, for instance... I grew up in Leuven, but I didn't grow up particularly rich. I just grew up, you know, my parents were immigrants. So there's no one to speak for black immigrants on a national level, you know, because mm -hmm. there's no one that has had that experience. And I'm not saying that you need an experience to know what you're talking about or to take that experience into account. But I'm just saying it adds something to your politics if you do involve people that have gone through certain, you know, struggles and experiences um, in your, in your um, network, you know? Mm -hmm. How are you going to know what a struggling black family is dealing with in Brussels if you don't have black politicians? And if you don't include that, you're not getting the, whole, the wholeness of politics as well. Exactly. That it's seen as, oh, yeah, we should do this for inclusivity mm -hmm. or, like, diversity or whatnot. Mm -hmm. But this isn't this. We're just trying to find a totality of politics in the first place. And yeah. by disregarding that or seeing it as an additive structure is very presumptuous, obviously. Yeah, so to come back to your question, it is very tiring to see that black philosophers or thinkers in general, intellectuals, are not taken seriously and are always um, you know, labeled as talking about race and race only and not, not other stuff. It's just it's stupid because white... Readers, uh, white writers are considered, you know, neutral and objective, mm -hmm. and they know what they're talking about, and they can look at things from a neutral perspective. Whereas, you know, I thought we we've already debunked that there's no no such thing as being neutral or yeah. objective. Yeah, yeah, hmm. interesting. <laughs> that was hilarious. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Interesting. I see what you did there. Okay, cool. <laughs> I said, Maylot, once again, taking my breath away. No, I didn't 
say anything. Oh my god, it just spilled like literally spilled tea in your couch. I'm sorry. Damn. I wish you figuratively just spilled some tea. No, as you should have. Should I clean it? No, it's fine. It's just tea. I know, but it, you have such a lovely couch. I don't want to stain it. Honey, it's been stained. <laughs> it's been stained already up. <laughs> um, I do not want to go into that. Okay, so what are you? What are you? What are your thoughts on the book? Then, what does he say? That did he? Did he like blow your mind? By the way, our producer Kat is melting. Yeah. She she just said, "I'm too white for this weather." Which is true, and like Australia, why why do you exist then? Because Australia clearly is not made for white people. They have the highest skin cancer rate in the I know, world. It's like literally. Yeah, I'm just adding that I'm not just normal white. I am hell pale. I get sweaty when I eat spicy food, so I'm made for like Laplanders heavy skin. Okay, she. That is my pigmentation. <laughs> I will say, and I'm about to do a call out. She did tell me that she was in the sun too long, and she threw up because it's of it. True. I, Because of the sun? So the sun is literally... Because it was from bad weather to very oh, sunny yeah. all of a sudden, and I really need adjustment. It's very sad. Wow. <laughs> that is that is sad. I was going to say that's hilarious, but it's not. <laughs> that's sad. I love the sun, but the sun does not love me. Are you allergic to the sun? Because that yeah, exists. Yes. However, I have one... That once I fell asleep in the sun in Romania, it was so hot, um, I got like a sunburn right above my... Uh, bikini areola not just like on my oh <laughs> <laughs> yes because above my bikini is my areola <laughs> no, you're wearing it wrong you're wearing your bikini like that <laughs> i just wanted to say areola because i like the word no but it was uh three days later it was a full-on second degree burn wound Ooh. so not allergic but very sensitive yes. okay wow Shout out well, for Kat. We'll put a donation link mm-hmm, at the bottom of this. Mm-hmm, you know, give what start you need. A kick, oh, Kickstarter. A, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, instead of talking about the book, I do have a interview piece from Lauren Hill. If you want to look, at, listen to that, we can like Ooh, put up on that. Lauren. Yeah. You know, I can always listen to Lauren. By the way, when you said realign my energy, when you were talking about Sedona, that's something Lauren said too. When she like retired from music. She said, I need to realign my energy. Yeah, no. Lauren, If speaking about New Age or whatever, even though Lauren is very, very Christian, the way that she introduces her faith is done in the lines of, yeah, I think of a way that is kind of bordering New Age because she really does like forward play. She takes that power and I think she emits it. I mean, just through her music, you can feel her emitting. Lauren is such a queen. She's doing musical Reiki. She is. She is. But she's done more than that. I mean, Miseducation is still, 20 years later, one of the best albums ever made. So fresh. So good. And I'm, you know what? I'm mad at Cardi B and Drake for <gasps> doing, I'm mad at the, well, I don't want to hear a Chopped and Screwed or whatever version mm. of X Factor when I hear, care for me, care for me, I know you're there for me, in her Sing song. Mm-hmm. Now I'm thinking, oh yeah, the Drake part. Yeah. You are not going to no, do that. No, kids today are going to be like, oh, that's the Drake song. And mm. no, Lauren did it first. Educate yourself. I, yeah, edu- or miseducate yourself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or, you know, <laughs> she says, tell me, who do I have to be 
to get some reciprocity. Reciprocity. Yeah. Try to get that in a song. Yeah, that and Drake, word. you try to do that. He tried to do that? What'd he say? No, I'm saying, Drake, you try to get some reciprocity uh. because that was some <laughs> asymmetrical bullshit taking mm. her song. Reciprocity. It's such a difficult word. And she managed to put that in the lyric. That's freaking amazing. And she rhymed it with B. Ooh. I would have just rhymed B with Hallelujah. me or Lee or Kiki. Or C. <laughs> or, yeah, that's about it. All right, right, let's. <laughs> we're going to play um, this part of the interview really fast. So, whoop, go. I personally don't feel the pressure. The pressure is out there. <laughs> yeah, but I don't, I don't feel it. I, I really, really don't. Um, you know, it does exist. Everyone, you know, I see people, hey, when's that record company you coming? You know, you can't leave us hanging like that. We need something else. Or the record company, you know, the, the, the window of opportunity is almost closed. But I just don't think that those rules apply to me. And not because of me, but I just think that it's something spiritual and something bigger. And I think that um, if you respond to the needs of the people, you know, that, that, that's timeless. There is not a window of opportunity for people's needs. My whole life at, at, the, at a certain point was studio and, and uh, you know, uh, studio, hotel, stage, hotel, stage, studio, stage, hotel, studio, stage, you know, and, you know, and I was expressing, I, I was expressing everything from my past, everything that I had, you know, I had experienced prior to that studio stage time. And it was like, you know, you, you, you have to go back to the well, you know, in order to, you know, in order, in order to, to, to give someone something to drink, you know, you can't, I felt like a cistern, you know, dried up and like there was nothing more, you know, and I, and it, it was so beautiful because um, normalcy, I returned to a normal situation. Ah, oh, Lauren, that was so beautiful. First and foremost, thank you, Lauren, for ever talking, ever. For existing. Because we needed that. Mm-hmm. So what did you think about it? I thought it was beautiful, but Lauren, as much as I love her, confuses me. Because she, like, dropped one album and then she disappeared, which I get, you know, pressure can get to you, as, you know, but she just said there was no pressure. What'd she say about the people's needs? Well, she was saying that um, there's no pressure for her to drop a new album. She said that the, she said that there's not a window of opportunity for people's needs. Yeah, I totally resonated with that. But where did Lauren go? Well, this is a thing because there's also been a lot of pressure. There's also been a lot of statements being said about her that you know she dropped one album and she could have changed a lot. I mean, she was you know. Um, always spearheaded a lot of uh, black activism and she was a voice for a lot of people and yet she just gave it all up as we were kind of talking uh, before of like a kind of as we were talking before as a kind of protection uh, she had to protect herself because there was no way that she was existing she was feeling exploited by her company as she was saying you know drop something hot do this a pressure of a window of time and she just decided to you know be inductive about that and mm-hmm. recede back into herself. And that's also a question to ask as well. She says there's no window of time for people's needs, but where is the window of time when it's like, okay, you you have to get back on the scene. You have to do something because you have the ability to change lives. You have the ability to do change certain voices. And when is this kind of mode of protection uh, no longer your first go-to? Mm. No, but the thing is, 
I, I, you know, I'm a huge Lauren fan and I'm grateful that she ever made Miseducation because that album was just, it gave me life. And I was a kid when it came out, but I had older brothers. So, mm. you know, automatically you just inherit their music taste. So when they bought um, the Miseducation in 1998, I was seven at the time, but I used to listen to it. So I really, I grew up with the, with the album uh, and then I rediscovered it like years later. But, you know, to make such an album and then like disappear. And, you know, if you need time to realign your energy, to figure things out, that's cool. Mm. But then disappear from the scene entirely and then do like a shady comeback and not. Uh, be on time for your concert. Any concert. Do <laughs> not go anything. to that new concert no. because she's not going to mm-hmm. show up. Like, what happened, Lauren? What went wrong? And, like, even Miseducation had, like, a shady reputa- reputation because she wouldn't credit um, everyone, like, fairly. Um, she, it was written, produced, created by Lauren Hill and, like, some other people that worked on the album were like, hey, what about us? And it was, like, settled in a lawsuit. So, it's just weird. I is she not the person that I made of her like you know all these years and that I idealized like is she I don't know is Lauren just a bit Well this is a good question then because I was also thinking you know had she have gone I don't know who to compare it to but had she have just kept dropping tracks and dropping records you know would we still have this kind of deitized version of Lauren because it's kind of this mm. This is kind of this only having this one album with so much truth that's written in it that we keep coming back and like revitalizing. I just pulled this interview from 2001, Mm -hmm. you know, and I still listen to that regularly as Mm -hmm. some form of truth. So it's also like, okay, is this absence of yours giving more power to your name, to like your original message, or are you bastardizing yourself by not speaking more on it? Probably. I think it helps with this like cult status that she's gained. You know, that one album is just her only. <laughs> Wait, oh, MTV and the, Unplugged. And like, you know, Fuji, Fuji's was, was lit as well. She did make some cool tracks with Wyclef. Wy, wow, my vo- voice just went up. Wyclef and uh, Praz. But still, I don't know. She influenced Cardi B. She influenced Drake. She influenced... So many black artists, but she she did a Kanye without the work, without the music, without mm. the quality, and that's a shame. Tis, tis. Because you can go all Kanye, you know, you can go rant, and you can do whatever the fuck you want, as long as you make good music. And you're still dropping that as yeah. you still make these claims. Yeah. But yeah. if you're not doing that and you're just coming late to every single performance that you're headlining, I don't know. So Lauren, get back. But like, we want a good comeback. <laughs> no. We don't want whatever is happening right now. I don't know. Am I being too hard? Are you still standing for Lauren? Okay, this is the only thing that I have to critique because I've also watched some of her other interviews and it also kind of, I don't know her personally, disclaimer. <laughs> he said, I don't know her. I so, know her sister, we stay <laughs> close. But for some reason, she's never at the family functions, you believe it or not. <laughs> so yeah. I have to chill without her. But mm-hmm. I think that when I watch her later interviews, there's kind of this retraction or this kind of like I can just feel like she's 
been made tired from like all the things that she's gone through in life. I don't know what she's gone through. I don't know what she's been through. Anything, but I, she, well, there's she kind has of the, five kids, so she must have gone through some some sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And she just seems tired, so it makes me think as well. Like maybe it's not too harsh because there's also this tendency to idolize um, black women in strife, mm-hmm. such as like Nina Simone, Lauren Hill, and other things of people that have had like quote unquote rough lives and like making kind of like a fun tragedy. Out of them, and then listening to their music, but and the being thing like, is, "This Lauren is the thing. isn't even from like a, uh, you know, she didn't she's even from have, New York. Yeah, she's from New York. Her parents were well off. She grew up in like a very mixed neighborhood. She went to school with Zach Braff of Scrubs. I don't know if you know. That she, she went to school with Zach Braff. They were in the same class. He went. They went to the same prom, etc. You guys yeah. are going to have to take out the last. He, five minutes. She went to his bar mitzvah. Mm-hmm. They were close. So she w- it wasn't like poor old Lauren, you know, abusive household, uh, well, racism, was- what, probably racism, but not in the same extent that, you know, Nina Simone went through. So mm-hmm. she, I don't know, she had everything to be more than just that one album. Yeah. But maybe, you know, she didn't want to. That's cool, too. You know, she, you have free choice uh, as an artist. So if you don't want to, you don't want to. But mm. the world is... Not a better place with her absence. So that is damn true. Ever since her release, what was it, 1999? 98. 1998. 20, 20 year anniversary. 1998. Ever since 1998, everything's been going downhill. True. Everything. Yeah, 9-11, uh-huh. the Iraq War, you know, I'm Syria not, happened. I'm not, I'm not trying to put that on Lauren, Mm-mm. but she needs to think twice. But, you know, there's a correlation there. Okay. <laughs> that all did happen since she didn't release her mm-hmm. album. True. Oh, but you know, uh, Kat, our Antwerpian, uh, just pointed out that gay marriage is legal in a lot of states in the United States and in the world. So that is true. That's that great. is true. It's I mean, legal in the world now. not in the world, but in a lot of places. Yeah, that I is mean, true. that's great. That's great. And thank, you, I mean, thank you, Lauren. Thanks, Lauren. That, thank you, Lauren, for doing that. Even though I do have my. Slight reservations. No, that's too controversial. What? When you, whenever you say that's too controversial, you know people want to know what you're going to say. Okay. So I was talking about this with someone, Gilel. Um, here's a shout out. Gilel? Gilel. Love it. Um, he's really cute. Where is he from? Uh, he's half Israeli and half French. Okay, cool. Gilel. Um, Gilel, this one's for you. I don't know why you would listen to this, but <laughs> this one's for you. Does he live in Israel? No, he lives in, you know, he lives in Brussels. Oh, Shout out Galil. Galil, what's up? So anyway, we're talking about this, that in the 1970s and whatnot, from the um, AIDS epidemic and stuff that, you know, plagued the U.S. and other countries. Is it plagued? I would say it was a plague. Plagued? Shit. (laughs) Ones that plagued other countries in the 1970s and whatnot, a whole generation of queer radicals Mm -hmm. were, you know, killed. Like a lot of people were died from this. In comparison, when you have this, these all these radicals that died, Foucault was an example, um, you have this intellectual vacuum that starts to f- fill in. So it became, you know, these suburban, in a lot of ways, these suburban, you know, white guys that like end up moving to the cities that um, weren't, didn't die from the epidemic. And then they started becoming the new proprietors of the 
you know, LGBT movement. So, of course, the main critique is that why are white gay men overrepresented, blah, blah. Even though the AIDS epidemic did kill off a lot of white gay men that were radicals, these people had the mentalities of trying to be subsumed by heterosexual, heteronormative cis culture. And from this, I mean, we've gotten gay marriage, but at the same time, it's kind of also just trying to be invisible, that they that there's this new aspiration to become... Um, heteronormative. Heteronormative. Mm. Cis, heteronormative, you know, gay men particularly have hijacked a radical movement uh, origin- that started in the 70s mostly and have gotten gay marriage and they don't want to be known as any people. Belgium's a great example. I mean, being... I don't see... Uh, there's not as much trans vi- visibility, for instance, mm-hmm. um, in Belgium. And I see mostly just gay men that you can't really tell apart from straight people, even though that's already, you know, how can you tell apart, whatever. But I think that it's just a subsuming of this, like, heteronormative culture that is also weird of the way that we push because mm-hmm. there's this anti-radicalism that I end up feeling. Mm. Um through certain things. Of course, gay marriage was necessary, but I, that was my controversial opinion. No, I mean, it's not controversial in that you can um, fight for something and critique it at the same time. I mean, there's nothing revolutionary about marriage, mm. like, you know, but it is revolutionary when you look at it from an LGBTQ perspective. Mm. So, yes, it is fighting for something that's very heteronormative, but at the same time, not giving people the choice to do whatever the fuck they want with their spouse, mm. that's oppression. Mm. That we need to eradicate. So no, but you can you can you know fight for the right, but critique it. I don't think one excludes the other. It's true. Um, so nothing controversial about that at all, in my opinion. Oh, Hela's opinion is <laughs> truly my most important opinion to take. So <laughs> and your mom's, but I'm kind of your mom. It's true. I don't know what my mom would say about that opinion. She would make you a T-shirt <laughs> <laughs> with a Foucault quote. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> um, I guess to lead back to it then, uh, for when Lauren said there's not a window of opportunity for people's mm, needs. That's deep, though. How is that? How, how do you feel affected by that? Because if we talk about social activism or we talk about any type of um, medium or any type of goal that you want to set, not having a window of opportunity for people's needs, how would you interpret that in your life? I think what Lauren meant when she said, like, um, you know, people were were talking to her saying, when are you going to drop a new album? We need something, blah, blah, blah. You're going to miss this opportunity. You're going to miss your 15 15 minutes of fame, blah, blah, blah. She just said, like, no, because I'll always be relevant because I talk to people's needs. I talk to people on a different level, kind of. And I think that's true that if, if you stay true to yourself and your beliefs and you make genuine good content, whatever it is, you're always going to be relevant. And don't try to um, go with the hype. Don't try to like follow every trend, but just write or sing or do whatever you think is good quality. Um, and as long as you do that, there's always going to be a window of, of opportunity, mm. in my opinion. I interpreted it that way. Um and what do you think the people need now that they didn't need in 2001 when she said that? If there is something else. What people need now? 
What do you think the need, if, if Lauren was to drop a new album, what do you think, there's never a window of opportunity for people's needs. Yeah. What do you think that need would she accommodate for? Oh, I mean, I think people's needs are always kind of consistent. It's just like looking for meaning, you know, like genuine meaning, not just like, you know, this is popping right now, so I'm going to do this. I think what was so powerful about Ms. Education was just she was so vulnerable. She was just talking about her emotions, about her doubts as a woman, as a black woman. And to be so open about your emotions will always be relevant. So I think people need to talk more about emotions because emotions are just like gone everywhere and mm. they're just deemed as like irrational, feminine, mm. um, bad. And I think what I see as um, someone that works in a cultural center is this um, this demand and this question for emotion in the arts is coming back. Mm-hmm. You know, You know how like artists were not supposed to pour their emotions in a work but have a very philosophical theoretical approach and like yeah this piece is talking about the oppression of the female body and blah 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 <laughs> you know yeah that's how you you narrate your piece of work but now we see that a lot of artists are actually saying you know i wanted to look at my emotions what was i feeling um i i felt this when i was creating this so there's you know there's a, yeah. a going back to and giving space to emotional wisdom and intelligence. And emotion is so necessary for every way that we make art or make a critique or make a judgment because the world becomes presented to us through emotion. It's not that I like it's not that I feel, you know, angry, like I am angry. Mm-hmm. Like my being has become angry. Mm-hmm. So being able to grab onto that and realize that is saying you know, how the world's presented to you. And that holds truth as well. So it is this kind of vulnerability that Lauren Hill gives that's so, and artists as well, that you're yeah. saying this revival that is giving a certain type of truth that we want to get away from because we think these theoretical, you know, mundane acts are something that by removing ourselves is something more true. But at the same time, we're always especially speaking about the human condition, we're always predisposed to every emotion we can't live without. I know, but like even in philosophy, it's like you can't, you, you can't almost talk about, it's like frowned upon to, to express how you feel or like when you read a text, right, you right. have to analyze it very critically, very theoretically from some kind of framework, but mm. you can't actually express how you feel yeah. when you're reading the text. Yeah. And that's weird to me because obviously whenever you read or consume a piece of art, it does something to you. But why is that like obliterate? (laughs) Whenever I try to say a hard word, (laughs) the universe is like, no, this is out of your reach. Anyway, obliterated. Uh, Why is that like frowned upon? I mean, can't you just say like this text or this album or this piece of work speaks to me because, you know, it touches me, it moves me or whatever. I think that first there's always this feeling of shame that like overtakes us that if we say like, oh, you know what? When I listened to Zion, I thought about my mom and I cried. You know, Mm -hmm. there's something about that that at once when you like present it to the other person, 
they're not going to feel that. They're going to say, okay, well, obviously he has some mommy problems, mm-hmm. you know, something like this. So it is like a fear to say because there's such, once you give yourself to the world and you open yourself and you say, I feel this, you are room to all forms of criticism, mm-hmm. all forms of other analysis. While I'm feeling this and I'm saying, you know, I feel this way, people are going to use these frameworks and they're going to look at me and say, oh, it's because of this. Yeah. Instead of just being in itself and just saying, this is how I feel, mm-hmm. people are going to pick you apart. And I think that it's this kind of fear of criticism of like, oh, no, I'll beat you to the punch. Yeah. I'll just do the in- analysis as well. I'll remove myself from it. So I think there's a lot, an insane amount of dignity also humility and strength and just being able to say how you feel because people are just going to use these frameworks against you. Yeah. But like when you're in an office space or whatever, in any professional context, not just like in general, right? Emotions are deemed highly, highly, highly unprofessional. You have to stay like, you have to have a straight face and talk business and not talk about like, oh, this incident made me feel some kind of way. And I'm like, when you suck out every emotion from an office place, uh, space, then you just have a sterile, like, uh, artificial, non-human space. I mean, mm. and that doesn't exist. So it's just, I don't know. It's crazy how, we, how we've, like, expelled every emotion from um, our interactions with people. Mm. Well, we're going to move on to our last section. I hope that this kind of emotional rampage through Lauren Hill... Made you realize something about yourself. Listen to Miseducation right now. Listen to MTV Unplugged 2.0. As well. As well. I got to find peace of mind. Mm-hmm. You're going to become a Christian. Mm-hmm. Listen to War in the Mind. You're going to become a Marxist. Mm-hmm. Listen to the whole thing. It'll be both. Listen to Lauren. So I need to bring a, um, a slam poet or a slam poem or a freestyle, but I suck at freestyle. So how first about we all, do this? First of all, mind you, English is my third language. I'm not a native speaker. So for me to rhyme in English is extra difficult. Well, uh, but you're extra smart. So it should be like at least first and a half language it's for you. It's gonna be extra awkward, but here goes, here oh, goes, here If goes, you want to, if, okay, go off. Go off. She put her hand up. Go off. I'm going to do it. If if I'm being cornered, then this is what you're going to get. Okay. So the sun is in my eyes and I see the sun rise. I see no, I feel pain. Am I being insane? I want you to love me, squeeze me, make me yours. And I don't know what rhymes with yours. Yo, girl, I want to... (laughs) She wants some yogurt because she never flow hurt me. Always hurt me when she knew she loved me, but that was just her fragility. And my virginity, you took my virginity over and over again. Where are you now? Now I'm a baby mama with three kids, but the kids have not seen their father. Am I even their mother? I don't know how many times you will be born again, Christian, but I cannot take a virginity more than 10, maybe 20 times. Those babies ain't mine. If you ever knew what would surprise you, look behind and I'll take you and fly to apple pie sky. If you ever knew my titties, then you would know that you would contrive 
another. Amen. Thank you for that. <laughs> Round of applause. <laughs> that was blasphemy. Blasphemy. Yeah. Uh, wait. Anyway. Can we... <laughs> wait can actually since we were talking about lauren and i don't know how much we're going to be talking about music on this do you maybe want to try like a acapella of boy first you make me do a freestyle <laughs> now you want to make me sing the world knows i have the i know but i want it to be a freestyle otherwise it's not freestyle you know it's true true i don't want to i want to say true to myself <clears throat> Is this just a silly game? I don't know any lyrics to songs, even Lauren. Is this just a silly game? Definitely, definitely. Uh, uh. I know you're there for me, there for me, there for me. (laughs) I cannot take you seriously. First of all, you think you're seducing me. You should look at him. Wow, it's hilarious. Anyway, um, you, why don't you sing this song? I know you want it. Okay. Want to. Um, I'm just going to do the acapella for yeah. doo because everybody knows it. <clears throat> Man, you know you better. Watch out. Watch out. Some girls, some girls are only about, about that thing, that thing, that thing. Go. Girl, you know, I don't, don't. <laughs> Boy, you know you better. Watch out. Some guys, some guys are only about that thing, that, that thing, thing, that you thing. You know, that song is kind of slut shaming, though. But she does it on both ways, to be fair. Really? She slut shames both boys and girls. She said some girls are only about, and this is all some boys are only about. Yeah, but she yeah, tried to but do she's it. also like, I don't know. There's a part. I don't know the lyrics by heart, but like she's frowning about upon what girls are wearing. And stuff oh, yeah. Like, like uh, shaking your ass because you're thinking it's a trend, girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Let me break it down for you again. You know you only say because I'm truly genuine. Don't be a hard rock when you really are a jam. Baby girl, respect is just in the moment. Yeah. Like as if respect is in what you wear and like shaking your ass isn't respectful. I don't know. I don't know. But it was 98. So. More so, if I'm shaking my ass, it does not mean that I'm trying to get that thing. Right. It just means that I need to, you know, Dance. my ass is a little bit hot in this weather. Mm-hmm. I need to air it out. Mm-hmm. Amen. Anyway. Our producer is dying, so we're going to wrap it up. All right. May baby, I'll see you. Bye, J-baby. <laughs> I'll see you. Bye. <laughs> Love you. <ya. laughs>